you don't get your idea of who Jesus is from the Bible, you might end up following a false Jesus. If you don't get your idea of who Jesus is from the Bible, you might end up following a false Jesus. For example, and Ray Ortland does an incredible job explaining this in one of his books. He says, many believe in the feel-good Jesus. The feel-good Jesus always agrees with you and never disagrees with you. He's always smiling and just so grateful that you come to church every now and then. This Jesus tells you that everything, or excuse me, everyone is going to heaven because everyone is basically good at heart. This Jesus is small enough to fit anywhere, but he's not fit to be king. Which is why your conscience tells you that your problems are more serious than this Jesus Jr. seems to realize. And there are others who believe in the feel-bad Jesus. Feel-bad Jesus is really serious all the time. He's always pointing out your failures, always making you feel bad that your best is not good enough, never will be good enough. Feel-bad Jesus is harsh. So when you fail again, he rolls his eyes and he says, Seriously, you did it again? He's exasperated and annoyed with you, but he also keeps dangling a carrot out in front of you saying, if you just try harder and do better, you'll be okay and make it to heaven. Keep working hard and you'll be better than all those other sinners. People who believe and feel bad Jesus seem miserable, but they seem to like their miserable religion, probably because it makes them feel better about themselves as they prop themselves up against others. But feel bad Jesus is no king either. He's a smug dictator who would rather beat you down than build you up. Who do you think Jesus is? I can't imagine a more important question this morning. I know all of us have lots of stuff going on in our lives. You come in here with dozens of things that I know nothing about cares and concerns, fears, anxieties, loneliness, sin, anxieties of relational relational in nature, financial in nature, everything, everything that we can be anxious about, we are anxious about. I don't know where you are this morning. Sometimes I barely know where I am. Do you ever just pray, Lord, help me in the ways that I need help? And I don't even know what those ways are. Please help me. But all that aside, who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? Not who was he. Who is he? Who is he? What kind of God is he? What kind of God is Jesus Christ? What kind of God have you said, I'm his? What kind of God have you decided to follow? Are your ideas about Jesus ones that rubbed off on you from perhaps your parents or the church you grew up in? Maybe images of him in the media? Where are you getting your ideas about Jesus? 
Or have you met Jesus on the pages of the Bible? If we don't get our idea of who Jesus is from the Bible, we may end up believing in false Jesuses. In the Bible, on every page of the Bible, we meet a God who ultimately reveals himself in Christ, who isn't a feel-good God or a feel-bad God. Rather, on the pages of the Bible, we meet a good and wise king who responds to human sin with judgment and grace. Now, in our study of Genesis, we're coming into Genesis 3. We're still in Genesis 3, I should say. We will be for quite some time. So make your way to Genesis chapter 3. And what you're going to see this morning in Genesis 3 is that God, when he comes to Adam and Eve, who've broken God's word, they realize they're naked, they hide themselves in the bushes because of their shame, God comes to them nonetheless, and he comes to them drawing them, not driving them. He comes to them drawing them out of hiding with grace rather than driving them out of hiding with fear. Here's the main point of our text this morning. If you want to jot this down, if you're getting ready to settle in and doze off, please hear this before you do that. This is the main point of our text, and the main point I want to get across to you this morning. God comes to sinners in their shame, and instead of driving them away with threats, He draws them out with mercy. God comes to sinners in their shame, and instead of driving them out with threats, He draws them in with mercy. He doesn't come to make them feel good or feel bad. He comes to save them. He's not a feel-good God or a feel-bad God. He's a redeeming God who comes to sinners in the middle of their mess, and instead of driving them away with frustration, He beckons them. He calls them. He draws them with tender mercies. This is the God we meet in Genesis 3, which is very interesting because Genesis 3 is the perhaps darkest chapter in the Bible. It's where evil and sin enter the world. And in the middle of this darkness, we see a God coming in with mercy. So here's our text. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Three verses and three points. First, we'll see God comes in verse 8. God comes, verse 8. Secondly, God calls, verse 9. God calls in verse 9. And then thirdly, Adam responds in verse 10. Adam responds, verse 10. This is where we're going this morning. Genesis 3, 8 through 10. God comes, God calls, and then Adam responds. Number one, verse 8, God comes to the garden seeking Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve wanted knowledge, now they have it, but when God comes, they have nowhere to run. 
God the gardener comes into his garden because he cares deeply about the welfare of what he's created. He's not the distant God of the deist, but a close God who involves himself with his creation. The Hebrew here in verse 8 suggests that this was perhaps a normal daily appointment when the Lord would come in the cool of the day and connect and commune with Adam and Eve personally. After a long day of joyful work cultivating the garden, they would end the day communing with their maker. This scene reminds me of one of the most formative experiences of my life. I lived across the pasture from my grandparents. Notice I said pasture, not street. (laughs) There were cows in between our houses. And we would walk over to our grandparents' house all the time. And especially in the summer, summertime, there were so many summer evenings where we'd venture over to Grandma and Papa's house and we'd sit on lawn chairs in their driveway. And in the shade of their house, the cool evening breeze blowing, we'd sit there, sometimes for hours, talking about anything and everything. I think that's where I learned how to shoot the bull. You guys know how to shoot the bull? It's an acquired art. We'd sit there talking, laughing, shelling peas, eating peaches, connecting with one another, communing, enjoying. Those moments were sheer delight for me as a boy. I look back on them with great fondness. But can you imagine doing that kind of thing with with the person of God in paradise? (laughs) Can you imagine communing with God himself the end of each day, in paradise. This was perhaps Adam and Eve's daily experience. It wasn't God, so it wasn't God's walking through the garden in the cool of the day that was unusual. What was unusual here is Adam and Eve's reaction. They hear the Lord God coming, and it says the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, instead of communing with God, their plan is further concealment. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. The last time we saw that phrase, the man and his wife, is 2.25. You might glance at 2.25, chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then 3.8, they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. A complete transformation has happened. Trusting innocence in 225 is now replaced by fearful guilt. Verse 7 of chapter 3 told us, as we saw last week, that the first result of sin was a loss of this childlike innocence. They were suddenly ashamed of their bodies. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They were suddenly ashamed of their bodies and they hid themselves from each other with the fig leaves. But then verse 8 says that the second result of sin was loss of communion with God. Instead of running to God in the cool of the day as he walked through the garden, they run away from him. Connection is replaced by alienation. They were suddenly afraid and hid themselves from God. So first, they hide themselves from each other. and Second, they hide themselves from God. Rather than obtaining the deity that the serpent promised, they're afraid to even be with God. They hear Him coming, and they run. 
I wonder if this is why many people, even Christians, stay away from church. Sometimes our stated reason is, you know, Christians are all hypocrites. Why would I go hang out with those people? But ironically, it's our own hypocrisy. It's our own failure to measure up to God's standards that drives us away from God's presence. So sometimes we'll skip church because we know what we've done and we don't want to come before the Lord. This is why the church must operate more like a rescue ship, not a cruise liner. Every person in this room is a hypocrite. You have to believe that to become a Christian. You have to believe that you've broken God's law, that you're not who you think you are. You aren't as good as you think you are. That's like a prereq for Christians. We don't even measure up to our own standards, right? How many of you got up as early as you wanted to this morning? Okay, don't raise your hand because then the rest of us are going to feel bad. We don't even measure up to our own standards we set for ourselves, much less God's. And we feel that, and we run. And we neglect the very people who are just like us, by the way. We neglect them because we don't want to come before the presence of the Lord. We hide ourselves from each other. We hide ourselves from God. God's people have been doing this for thousands of years. The Israelites did the same thing at Mount Sinai. When they heard in Exodus 20, when they heard the sound of the Lord, they were afraid and stayed at a distance. They said, Moses, you go ahead and you handle that. We're going to stay back here. Their fear kept them away from the Lord. The picture of Genesis 3 is of fearful children hiding in shame from their father. Now, it's not clear why they thought the trees could hide them from God. Kind of silly if you think about it. Here comes God. Maybe this tree will hide me. But don't we all do silly things just like that to try to hide ourselves from God? We max out our schedules. We let busyness keep us from communion with God. We sit in front of our screens for hours at the beginning and end of each day rather than sitting before the face of God. We might even try to hide from God in church, assuming that activity, religious activity and church attendance and ministry will hide us from reality. How are you trying to hide from God? We're all just like Adam and Eve here. Instead of running behind trees, we might be running behind something else. What are you running behind? What are you running behind to hide yourself from the face, from the gaze of the Lord God? Remember what Adishe read earlier from Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And then David asked in Psalm 139, where shall I flee from your presence? Where shall I flee from your presence? The answer is nowhere. If you belong to God, Brothers and sisters, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and turned away from your sin, been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you're a child of God, the knowledge that He sees you, this no creature is hidden from His sight business, that kind of knowledge isn't meant to scare you away. It's meant to draw you in. He sees everything, and He still adopted you. He knew everything about you. And he still said, that one's mine. 
So if you're his child, this knowledge should free you from the exhausting bondage of hiding from him. Our sin and shame and guilt drive us away from the Lord and away from his church, but the Lord hasn't been driven away from us. Now, of course, for those here this morning who might not yet be Christians, those who don't know the Lord, running from the Lord is an understandable impulse because you stand under his judgment. In the book of Revelation, we see how people who don't know God react when he comes looking for them. Revelation 6, 15 through 16. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountain, mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So those who don't know God would rather have rocks fall on them and bury them alive than come before his face. Friends, if you haven't yet turned away from your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, I urge you to do that today. Why? Because you can't hide from him when he comes for you. You're not even hiding from him now. He sees you. And you will see him. And when you do, you'll have to give an account for your life. If your sins aren't covered by the blood of Jesus, you'll want to run, but there'll be nowhere to hide. So run to him today so you don't have to run from him then. And if you do run to him today, you'll receive pardon and forgiveness and new life. Those who run to Christ will no longer be afraid of seeing him, but will rather long to see him. When Jesus returns, Paul says that, He'll be marveled at, I love this word, he'll be marveled at among those who have believed. 2 Thessalonians 1.10. And then at the end of the Bible, with new bodies, John says, with new bodies and a new earth, we will see his face. So looking into Jesus' eyes on that day, we'll be stunned by his beauty, we'll marvel at the relief and rest and acceptance that we found in him, knowing full well what kind of people we are, we'll be finally and fully relieved that the gospel is indeed true, that we're right with God, and not just in some dry and generic sense, but in a familial sense, that the God of heaven will say, you're my daughter, you're my son, I'm so happy you're finally home, get in here. When we see his face, it'll be sheer exuberance. But it's only those who understand their nakedness now, their shame, their guilt now, who get to look into those beautiful eyes with relief, not regret. Back in Genesis 3, the fact that Adam and Eve felt shame over what they'd done was actually a positive sign. This indicates that there was hope for their salvation. Why? Because where there's no guilt or shame, the only remedy is judgment. But where there's conviction of sin, the grace of God is stirring. What if Adam and Eve had done what they did and then just kind of kept strolling through the garden? Oh, Lord, you're back. Cool. High five. Great to see you again. What do you want to do today? Can you imagine? No. So they're running and they're hiding. Their shame and their guilt is an indication that grace is on the move. So God comes in the cool of the day 
He comes and they hide. That's number one. Number two, verse nine, God calls out to the man. God comes, number one. God calls, number two, verse nine. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Please don't miss how amazing this verse is. It's so short we might read it and move on too quickly. I'll read it again. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? This is an amazing verse. Why? It's amazing because God comes to sinful man with a question, not with threats. He wants to draw him out of hiding by grace, not drive him out by fear. We'll learn in the next verse, Adam's already afraid of God. Adam's already afraid. His sin made him guilty, and he knows it, so he fears God, rightfully so. But amazingly, God doesn't capitalize on his fear. Rather, his approach is to shock him with grace. Where are you? Yes, judgment and consequences will come. That's verses 14 through 19. In a sense, they will pay for what they did. Adam and Eve will die physically just as they've died spiritually. But don't miss this. The first thing God does when he approaches sinful man is to draw him out of hiding. This is so instructive for us. We're going to stay here for a minute. Is that okay? The first thing God does when he approaches sinful man is to draw him out of hiding. Adam and Eve had started a game of hide and seek with God, but they were the only ones playing. God's question, where are you, is rhetorical. God knew where they were because he knows everything. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? You're like, wait, what, what, what? Say that again. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? In other words, God knows everything. He never learns anything. He doesn't literally need to know where Adam and Eve are. He comes into his garden, not like an angry father, yelling, screaming, but like a gentle father, seeking his children. He approaches Adam and Eve with tenderness, not toughness. I'll ask again, where are you getting your image of Jesus Christ? Where are you getting your image of God? Feel good God, feel bad God? Or have you met the God of the Bible who comes to sinners? with tenderness, not toughness. God knows where they are, but he wants to draw them out. Sometimes when we play hide-and-seek with our kids, we'll often call out, where are you? Sometimes we literally don't know where they are. That's happened before, hasn't it, Elisha? Got lost for like 30 minutes in our apartment. Uh, but most of the time, we know where they are. We're just trying to draw them out because we want the game to be over. And they'll, they'll come out, you know, eventually. They'll, they'll start giggling, and we'll hear them, and 
will find them. We say, where are you? Not because we don't know where they are, but because we want to draw them out. This is what God is doing. And Adam's reply in the next verse shows us that he understood God's question as an invitation to come out and talk to him. God's question invites confession because he wants to reconcile with Adam and Eve. He wants to reconcile, not retaliate. He knows that reconciliation is never possible if the guilty don't own their guilt. So he comes to them with questions. Where are you? And then in 11 through 13, I think he asks like three or four more questions. He comes with questions which allows them to witness against themselves by their own admissions. God comes with questions, not statements. God comes with questions, not statements. Of course, he knows what's true. God knows exactly what happened and why. He needs Adam and Eve to know what happened and to own it. And to say what is true. He comes with questions, not statements. This is instructive for us as we seek to share the gospel with unbelievers. Blanket statements are easily dismissed and shut down conversation quickly. But good questions draw out information, point out contradiction, and reveal what's true. For example, instead of telling someone, there's only one true religion, instead ask, is it possible for everyone's ideas about God to be true? You're actually doing the same thing, but one is going to be a lot more effective because you're going to help someone see the illogical nature of what they believe through a question, not a statement. In evangelism, sometimes we can be so quick to just make statements and make people feel guilty because of sin, but slow to help people see the glory of grace. This may especially be true in newer believers who are anxious to see people come to faith, praise God, but they struggle with the desire to prevail in every conversation, to win every argument, rather than having a desire to help people see what's true. Sometimes this can come across in a sharpness, and a pointedness in tone, in desiring to preach rather than persuade. Now, of course, both may be necessary at some point, but it's instructive for us, again, that right here God came to the first sinners with questions, not statements. And he came with a gentleness to his questions that drew them out of hiding rather than driving them away in fear. Notice in verses 8 and 9, the narrator Moses has reverted back to calling God the Lord God. Verse 8, the sound of the Lord God, the presence of the Lord God. Verse 9, the Lord God called to the man. Moses wants us to see that the God who created the universe, Elohim, God, is also the God who goes after sinners. He's the kind of God who wants to be in covenant even with sinful people. He's a redeeming, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He's Yahweh. He's Elohim, Yahweh, the Lord God. As creator, he's made them. As redeemer, he goes after them. Of course, this reminds us of what Jesus said clearly time and time again about his own ministry. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, what do you think? 
If a man has a hundred sheep and one, and one of them go, has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? So in the garden, God is doing exactly what Jesus came to do, namely to seek and to save the lost. God hasn't changed. He's always been the good shepherd who wants to go out into the night when everyone else is asleep and unwilling to go out. He wants to go out into the night to find his lost sheep and bring them home to safety. And when he goes out, he goes with tenderness, not with toughness. It's noteworthy that he doesn't ask Adam, why are you hiding? But rather, where are you? There's so many things God could have said here. Adam, what have you done? Adam, you're an idiot. Adam, you broke my law. Adam, you broke my word. Adam, why are you hiding? Adam, get out of behind the trees. He could have said so many things, but what he says is, where are you? If he would have asked, why are you hiding? He's only going to be heaping on more shame by pointing out the obvious. Pointing out the silliness and stupidity of their actions. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't come with a tone of frustration or accusation. We might be tempted to read verse 9. Where are you? I don't think that's the tone of this text. Rather, it's Adam, where are you? Where are you? Where are you, Adam? He does this with Cain in chapter 4. He does it with Hagar in chapter 16. He approaches them with questions, not statements. He doesn't need information. He's inviting them to come to him. And he's inviting them to say what's true. He's inviting confession because the only thing Adam needed to qualify for his mercy was an honest assessment of his need. You're like, John, I've been struggling with this Christianity thing. I, I want to follow Jesus. I don't really know what that means or what that looks like. Well, it starts with an honest confessment, uh, excuse me, confession that you need God's mercy. That you have broken His law. God invites us to come to Him, to say what's true. His heart for His people is that for everyone who does that, for everyone who confesses their need, then his response is to give them beauty for their ashes, joy for their mourning, and praise for their despair. That's Isaiah 61.3. It's amazing. We come with need, and we get this abundance of joy and life and forgiveness and praise. It's a pretty good deal. He takes our sin, all of it, and he gives us his righteousness and a new life. One author, Jay Stringer, says, There is no depth of shame that the love of God cannot reach. There is no story he cannot redeem. You're like, John, you have no idea what I've done. You're right, I probably don't. You're like, John, you have no idea what's happened to me. You're right, I probably don't. But your story is not an impossible one. Your story is not an impossible one. The God of heaven can do anything. If God can speak one word and create a universe, he can redeem your life. He can even change ashes into beauty. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That he can make something pretty out of something ugly? You're like, John, I've heard that my whole life. It's just not happening. I feel you. I feel you. The beauty is not always this overnight transformation. 
It's not usually an overnight transformation. Usually it's decades of walking with the potter who over time shapes and reshapes us into something we never could have been otherwise. And then eventually when he returns, we are finally and fully beautified. Is that a word? (laughs) I don't know. Finally and fully glorified, forever reflecting the radiance and beauty of the Son of God. So yeah, he will do it. He will do it completely. And he'll do it progressively while we wait. The paradox of the gospel is that our sin and shame condemn us and then connect us to grace. Isn't that amazing? Your sin and shame condemns you and then connects you. In other words, we'd never taste the sweetness of grace if we never tasted the bitterness of shame. God approaches Adam and Eve for their redemption and joy, not out of retaliation and judgment. The first thing God says to fallen man has all the marks of grace. To help them, God must draw them, not drive them out of hiding. And this, of course, is what Jesus did with the Samaritan woman, what he did with the woman at the well, what he did with Matthew the tax collector. I wish I could preach on all those passages right now. I'll save you the time. Jesus Christ moved towards people that no one else wanted to move towards and changed their lives forever. Hey, Matthew, I know everyone hates you. Yeah. There's all kinds of words going through my head right now, the kinds of things that people would have called him, but I'll save you those things. Probably not appropriate for church. He was the kind of guy that we would, we would call different, very bad names. And Jesus walked right up to his booth. He said, hey, Matthew, follow me. Follow me. I know. I know who you are. And I know what my disciples are are saying right now behind my back. Why on earth are you talking to that dude? And he says, follow me. Anyways, follow me. Matthew, I got plans for you. I got beauty for you. I got beauty for your ashes. God moves towards you in your sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, please, Come out from behind the trees that you're hiding behind and let him receive you. Taste the sweetness of his mercy. You'll never be the same. So verse 8, God comes. Verse 9, God calls. And then finally, verse 10, Adam responds. Adam responds to God's call in verse 10. And he said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now because God made man first, and because he gave him his word first, he comes to the man first and then the woman, and then the serpent, inverting the order of the fall. You do the fall, sorry, with the serpent, woman, man, and God comes to the man, then the woman, and the serpent. Man was the most liable one, the most responsible one, because God created him to protect the garden, to promote his word, and so when that didn't happen, didn't matter whose fault it was, Adam was responsible. So he goes to Adam first. And in his response to God, Adam says... I heard you, I was afraid, because I was naked, therefore I hid. He's speaking on behalf of his wife, he's 
obviously hiding with his wife. He's not the only one hiding. They're hiding together. But in his response, Adam doesn't say everything that's true, does he? He isn't necessarily lying, but he's not admitting his sin. He's trying to turn the conversation to what happened after he sinned. I heard you. I was afraid. Because I was naked, then I hid. He's turning the conversation to what happened after he sinned. His excuse, though, is evidence of his sin. The reason he was naked in the first place, or the reason he realized he was naked, was because of his sin. The shame of nakedness was the result of the guilt of sin. His sense of shame, which he does admit to God, was created by his guilt. In other words, Adam is struggling to tell God everything that happened as if God didn't know. So he just tells him about what happened after he sinned. He wanted his sin to escape the notice of one whom nothing escapes, or I love this, as Augustine says, to conceal his flesh from one who is the inspector of his heart. Adam was trying to hide the unhideable. God came to talk about what happened in his heart, not why he was wearing a sweater made out of fig leaves. God wanted to talk about what was less obvious but more important. Adam wants to talk about what's more obvious but less important. God wants to talk about his guilt. Adam starts with his shame. I heard you coming. I was afraid. Because, key word, because I was naked. Not because I sinned against you, but because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam wants to talk about what's more obvious but less important. Adam mentions the symptoms of his sin, fear and shame, not the cause. He answers the question God didn't ask. He answers the why are you hiding question, not the where are you question. But he partially avoids, avoids the real answer. It wasn't his nakedness that made him hide. Keep in mind what, what they had already done. Remember verse 7? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So are they still naked? No. They covered themselves with fig leaves. He was clothed before he hid. He was naked, but now he's clothed. So why is he hiding? Because he's afraid. He says that plainly, because I was afraid. A new emotion came over him. Do you remember the first time you were afraid? I don't. <laughs> Unfortunately, fear is a type of emotion that many of us just learn to live with. Because it's always there in some way, to some degree. But can you imagine never feeling fear? Ever? Well, all of a sudden, Adam and Eve are afraid. The fear of the Lord had then led them to hide. Their fear led them to do the only thing they knew to do, and that was run for the bushes. Notice, though, that, it's, that they're hiding before God even speaks to them. Verse 8 told us that they go and hide only after they hear the sound of the Lord God walking, not the sound of the Lord talking. So the presence of the Lord was enough to make them panic. God hadn't said a word, and they're already running for their lives. Why? Because they know they're guilty. Felons who know they're guilty will do everything possible to avoid going to trial. Why do you think that people who've never heard the gospel or read the Bible are so afraid to die? Because they know intuitively 
that when they die, they're going to stand before the presence of God. They know that they're not ready to meet their maker. This is why perpetual anxiety plagues mankind. Ever since Genesis 3, shrinking away from God in fear rather rather than running to Him in faith is part of our human condition. The Bible says no one seeks for God. It could just as well say everyone hides from God. And then the Bible also says that we all know this is the ironic thing. We all hide from Him. We aren't seeking Him. But Romans 1 says we all know He's there. We all know He's there. And then it goes on to say in Romans 2, we all know that we've broken His rules. And yet instead of running to Him for help, we run away from Him and suppress our knowledge of Him with anything we can get our hands on. Why? Why do we do this? Because just like Adam and Eve, we believe the lies of the serpent. We assume, this is where it starts, I think, we assume that God isn't good, and that He only wants to control us rather than set us free. So we run. We believe the twistings of the serpent. We don't think that God is good, therefore we don't think His word can be trusted. So we flee, just like Adam and Eve. We have to come to the Bible and learn how God relates to people like us. In Genesis 3, we learn that God came to sinners with gentleness and grace, that He wanted to help them by drawing them, not driving them out of hiding. I might just point out the obvious. Despite their massive failure, God didn't come and kill them. This is instructive for us. He didn't kill them on the spot. Rather, he comes and engages them with conversation and with mercy. This is the God of the Bible. This is the nature and character of God towards sinners. Is this the God that you claim to follow? I'll start to uh, land the plane with this question. This, I think, is a, a great question. You can tell me what you think. Have you ever wondered why people felt so comfortable around Jesus. Why did people feel so comfortable around him? Why were, in particular, why were immoral people drawn to such a moral man? Generally, that's not what happens, right? Unfortunately. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians have this kind of aura of I'm better than you and so please don't come and contaminate me with your filthiness. I'm not saying all of us do that all the time, but we struggle with that. Christ, rather, (laughs) the righteous one, is the most approachable person in the universe so that the dirtiest people in society are just coming to him. Remember his opponents, they wanted to kill him and they, they, they claimed that he was a friend of sinners. You remember that? He's a friend of sinners. And he never denied that claim. He's like, yeah, (laughs) I am. That's the point, guys. Why why were so many people drawn to Jesus? It was because he drew near to them with tenderness and acceptance. He drew near to them with that thing that you so desperately desire, complete 
free acceptance, connection, communion, friendship, forgiveness. He blessed them with his grace and kindness. He saw them when most ignored them. He touched the people that most of the people fled from. He knew what he would do on the cross to set his people free. So he joyfully was drawn to them. The feel-good Jesus isn't honest with you, and the feel-bad Jesus isn't kind to you. Both are fake Jesuses. The real Jesus, like God in the garden, moves toward his people with gentle words meant to draw them out of darkness and despair, out of hiding and fear and shame, bring them to himself so that he might redeem them and start fixing what they broke. Jesus, by his spirit and through his word, is running through the world, even this morning, gathering up people just like Adam and Eve, people who've done unimaginably stupid things, people suffocating with shame, people struggling to own their own guilt, people not being honest about what's really true about themselves, people hiding from him because they've never really been told what he's like. He's running through the world looking for people like you and me. Isn't it cool how we can see Jesus in Genesis 3? Where are you? Friends, where are you? Where are you? Come out from behind the trees and let gentle Jesus wrap you up with his mercy. If you claim to not have any shame, if you claim to not be hiding, if you claim to not have guilt, you're not eligible for his gentleness. You're not eligible for his mercy. But if you will come out of the hiding, you'll finally and fully taste his mercy. In Jesus, God has come to you and is calling you so that we now can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you need to or want to follow Jesus today, grab me or grab the friend that you came with. Let's talk more about what this looks like in your life. Maybe you're a Christian, you're struggling. Grab a friend, grab an elder, grab me at the door, grab someone around you, talk with them, pray with them, come out from hiding, say what's true, and let gentle Jesus start to change you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Father, so providential that you allowed me to preach on this text this morning because you know that I am the chief of sinners. And you know how prone I am to hide and to run and to talk about consequences of sin but not the thing itself. Father, you know how much I need this gentle and very clear reminder that you've come after me with grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, with a tenderness, not a toughness, not a, hey, get your act together, quit being an idiot. Lord, thank you 
for showing me, and I pray that you would be opening all of our eyes this morning to the true nature of the Lord God. The one who comes to draw us out of hiding with grace, not to drive us out with threats. Lord, help us to be quick to run out from behind the trees, knowing that what we'll find is acceptance, not condemnation. Please help every person in this room to be honest about the trees they're hiding behind. Please protect us from playing religious games, from playing church, from pretending like we're Christians when we're not even close to knowing who you are and living how you've called us to live. Father, draw us out by the power of the Holy Spirit and the sweet mercies of Christ. Draw us out and make us, remake us into who you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.